Thank you for firing up the Sunrise Church podcast. My name is Steve Garcia, and I am the lead pastor at Sunrise. We are a community of Jesus followers from all walks of life, all colors of skin, and all ages. And I hope this message you hear today inspires you to deepen your connection with Christ. Let's dive in. Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor John, and it is my honor to be able to bring to you part three of our series uh, we're calling Future Revealed. And the last couple of weeks, just as a quick recap, week one, we went through uh, John's vision. We're talking about a vision that the Apostle John got on the island of Patmos from Jesus, essentially, a message to bring to, we learned in first uh, the first week, seven churches to talk about things he had seen and the things that were at that time and the things that were going to take place. Uh, essentially, it's a manual for the end times. And as we learned in the first week, it's not something to be fearful of. It's just something that uh, we want to be able to understand so that we can we can then be able to take our message of hope out to the rest of the world. Uh, and then in week two, last week, uh, we talked about suffering and what that looks like and then how to tackle suffering in our lives because there's plenty of suffering that is described uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, this week, as we get started, I want to talk about hostility. And, you know, when I was a kid, I, I had a lot of hostility growing up. Uh, I grew up in a, a one-parent home. I was probably just angry because my mom and dad split up, but it really showed up in a lot of parts of my life. Early in my life, actually even while my dad was still living with us, uh, I got in lots of fights. Uh, I was always in a fight. At one point we had moved from one neighborhood to another, partially because I was finding myself in so many fights. And as soon as we got to the new neighborhood, I get to the new school, I see a fight happening on the school grounds, two guys fighting against one guy, and me being me, I ran across the playground not knowing anybody or anything, jumped into the fight and started to fight essentially all three of them because I was angry. Uh, later on, I got signed up for uh, sports and, you know, like a lot of kids, to try to help deal with learning about competition and teamwork and all of those things. And uh, I was constantly being uh, before the coach and being given lectures about how I can't take everything out on all my teammates or even the other team. Uh, it was so bad that one summer um, I went to spend time with my uncle, having no father in my home. My mom wanted me to have some time with men in my life, so I went to spend summer with my uncle and I got to bring a friend. And one night my uncle and aunt went out for a date night. They went out and left us and we began to play Monopoly. And it was so bad that, and I was so competitive and I was so angry that at one point I began to lose in the game of Monopoly. Uh, and I literally took the board and threw it up in the air. All the pieces went everywhere. Some of them hit my friend, even cut him on, on his eye. Uh, and, and just at that very moment, as I'm beginning to punch on a wall and yell about losing, my aunt and uncle walk back in from their date. <laughs> and as I'm standing there embarrassed, you know, kind of mortified, my uncle pulls me aside and he tells me, you know, three reasons why I need to get my temper under control. One is uh, I'm going to be destroying things in my life for the rest of my life if I don't get it under control. Two is I'm not going to have any friends as I looked over at my friend who was bleeding and everything else. And number three is I was 28 years old. Uh, so clearly, you know, being angry has been a problem for me or was a problem for me all the way up till close to 30 years old before I began to think through how I could tackle that, the hostility. You know, I looked it up uh, online. The definition for hostility is a deep-seated ill will, and it's usually mutual, and meaning there's lots of times when there's hostility between two parties, uh, and it's a mutual hostility toward each other because of deep-seated ill will. Also, a second definition is conflict, opposition, or resistance in thought or principle. Now, 
here's what I would say. I think a, a great many of us have uh, probably exhibited some level of hostility. Uh, probably definition one, we've had some sort of deep-seated ill will. We may be carrying it now. It's usually mutual. Maybe whether we started or they started it, now there's this thing going on between you and another party, or, or we've experienced that throughout our lives. Uh, and in fact, maybe some of us have even experienced some conflict or opposition due in the second definition to some resistance to a thought or a principle. I can think of things like uh, politics and prejudice and pain that's been caused and philosophies and even finances. Oftentimes these are th principles or thought processes that can cause hostility in our lives or that we may cause for other. But here's my suspicion. My suspicion is, is that very many of us have not necessarily endured hostility, deep-seated ill will or conflict opposition as a result of our allegiance to Christ. You know, growing up in America, it may seem for many of us to be a fairly easy uh, and simple life. You know, I know we have our own struggles as far as America is concerned, but in comparison to the rest of the world, we live in a free nation. I know there's lots of debate about politics and things. We're not going to get into that. But the reality is, is that oftentimes things are fairly simple for most of us. And many of us, we don't come to that place where we have to endure deep hostility, violence, or even death as a result of our commitment to Jesus. But yet, across the rest of the world, that is happening all the time. And as we continue through our study in Revelation, we're going to learn something that maybe some of you already know, is that as, as God begins to unfold and unpack the, the end times, as we read through the Revelation, but then we also, you know, maybe are in the midst of experiencing some of this, uh, hostility is only going to grow in reference to faith. It already is happening. We heard about this last week when we talked about suffering around the world. But it's starting to close in even here on our own nation. And I want to look at Revelation 11 because it's just a fascinating story within the book of Revelation uh, of something that happens that I think you're going to be amazed by. Uh, in order to do that, let me set some context. Uh, most likely not to get in. We're, we're trying to do a flyover. We're not getting into deep weeds on things. But some things we can all agree on that, that I think most uh, camps that try to interpret Revelation agree on is that Jesus is coming back. We talked about that in the first week, maybe even the second. Jesus is definitely coming back. Um, you know, from Daniel, we can learn that there's a period of time that's about seven years, uh, oftentimes broken up in Revelation and even in Daniel into two, three and a half year periods. Uh, there are some are, are kind of on the outlining, you know, interpretive circles that will say that some of these things have already happened and that it's really allegory and it refers to events that have already occurred. But most people take it more on a literal scale and, and they look at a seven year period of time. And by the time we get to chapter 11, We've already had four horsemen who we learned last week bring false peace and war, famine, death. 25% of that population has died. Uh, many are, are being murdered for being followers of Jesus. There's a great earthquake that has taken place. Uh, meteors have hit the earth, a volcanic uh, eruption that has uh, literally changed the topography of the planet. And there's all kinds of, of things that happen from that. Uh, we've also learned that the seventh seal revealed seven trumpets by this point. Uh, and there's more wrath coming from God. All the green grass and a third of the trees are burned. A third of the sea becomes blood. A third of the sea, sea life is destroyed. A third of the fresh water becomes bitter and undrinkable. A third of the sun, the moon, and the stars stop shining so there's more darkness on the planet. Supernatural beings torture people for five months uh, by this point. A 200 million man army destroys one third of the population. So there's a lot going on. There's chaos. There's sort of deep uh, seeded panic and, and desperation and chaos happening. And in the midst of all of this, we get to Revelation chapter 11. I'm going to begin in verse 3. 
Um, and it says, and I will appoint my two witnesses, this is God speaking, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Uh, basically what this is referring to is God saying, I'm going to send two witnesses. Uh, they are the two olive trees in verse 4, the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Amazingly, in the midst of all of this mess that's going on, and much of it being brought by God, and then there's a response from the planet, in the midst of all this, as God is pouring out his wrath, where you might feel that everything's done and nobody has a chance, he still shows grace and mercy. One of the great principles of God is that his patience is not only long-lasting, uh, but, it, but it has multiple layers to it that while at the same time he can begin to bring judgment onto the planet to make things right, he is also giving a continued opportunity. He sends these two witnesses to give testimony to the world about Jesus and about the gospel. Their job is to prophesy, which really means more of a proclamation of truth, not so much future telling, uh, as some take it as prophecy being, you know, telling the future. They're really here to proclaim the truth of the gospel. They'll be around for three and a half years, 1260 days, you know, maps out to about three and a half years. Uh, and during that time, during the worst parts of God's wrath, they will be sharing and witnessing and inviting people to repent and to come to God. The olive tree and the lampstand that are in these verses are references from Zechariah 4. They basically represent symbols of revival and hope. Specifically, it's for Israel in regards to the building of the temple, both in the past and then again in, during this time. But the point is there's revival and there's hope. Uh, if we were to sum this up, just these first couple verses, in the midst of all of this, the point is, is that even though there is deep, and I mean deep desperation and chaos, God will still provide hope for the suffering, revival for his people, and grace to his enemies. Our God is amazing, and even in the midst of all of that, that he would offer this. In verse 5, it tells us a little bit about the, the hostility that starts to build up, and God creates kind of protection even for his witnesses. It says, if anyone, in verse 5, tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. So if there's people, and there will be, that come against them, they have the ability uh, to, to protect themselves uh, with fire that will come from their mouth and it will devour their enemies. Uh, they have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. They have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. If you've been around church for a while, you know that those references will remind you uh, of Moses and Elijah. And there are some who think that's who these two witnesses are. And it'd be great and easy to get caught up into a debate and discussion about it. It could be interesting, intriguing. But because we're doing a flyover, I'm not going to worry about who they are. And as a matter of fact, I will say this. There is a reason we're not giving their, given their identities. And so we don't get caught up in trying to figure all of that out and worrying about that. Instead, I want to encourage us to not miss the significance of what God is doing and get lost in some of the details of trying to interpret every little thing, especially things that we don't really have an answer for. Instead, let's catch the magnitude of what God is doing here as he sends these witnesses into his judgment. At the same time as judgment, he's sending an opportunity, a life raft, if you will, for people to get out of it. Verse 7, it says, when they have finished their testimony, so at the end of this three and a half year period, the beast that comes from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. 
She starts to, you know, picture really an incredible scene. Uh, the beast is a reference to uh, the Antichrist. It's basically a world leader who will be empowered by Satan, and he's the one who will kill them. We're going to learn more about him in the coming weeks, so I won't take a lot of time there. Uh, but he is this world leader that's rising up. And the, the key here is that he comes from the abyss, which is the place that is usually associated with demons and Satan and evil. It's sort of the center of evil, if you will. And he rises up from there. The great city is actually called Jerusalem in a great sad statement. It is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. Sodom, the example of a, of a city where the righteous did not have any impact. As a matter of fact, Sodom was destroyed because God challenged uh, Abraham to find 10 righteous people and he would save the city and he could not find them. So there were no, and yet there were one or two righteous in the city, but they were not doing their job. Just like in some ways, Israel did not do their job to be able to tell the world about the Messiah. Egypt is a symbol of, of bondage and slavery. And in, in many ways, the sadness here is that the city of Jerusalem had become a place of bondage and slavery and a place where the righteous were not able to speak out. We see some of this today as, as, as many different religions from the world, as well as just the pressure of politics starting to enclose a little bit in Israel. But what I want you to see is mostly is, is that in this city where they were killed, the same city that Jesus was killed in, these two, decide, or two witnesses, I should say, are laying in the streets for three and a half days. Ironically, the same amount of time for the most part that Jesus was in the tomb, but they didn't even have the dignity of a tomb. And it says that all of the people, tribes, languages, people from, I should say, every tribe, language, and nation. So all ethnicities, all people from around the world see this. Some may be there in person, some may be watching through some of the technology that we have today with satellites and other things. The point is, is that no one lay, raises a hand to help to bury them, the indignity that they lay them out after their life has been taken. Verse 10, the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. And one of the most amazing accounts of scripture we see these two witnesses who are sent by God. They are murdered in the street, not because they were overpowered, but because God allowed it to be so, because for all of that time, they are able to defend themselves. And then their guard comes down because of God allowing it and causing it. And the beast rises up, kills them, they lay in the streets, and now they create a holiday around their death. It's like national witnesses dead day or whatever you know they start basically like christmas exchanging gifts to each other why because their message was tormenting the world i'm struck by this concept uh, that as they began to bring forth the message of hope and of the gospel but you know from the standpoint of judgment everything that's going on i could imagine them saying is happening because you need to repent and in the midst of this people are so caught up in it that when they kill them they celebrate. In verse 11, it says, After the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. In an obvious reference to Jesus, they lay dead for three and a half days, and then they're raised up. And the voice from heaven says, Come here reminiscent of the voice from heaven that would tell Jesus after he came up out of the waters of baptism, here's my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And nobody listened to these witnesses and nobody will, will pay attention except possibly we'll learn in a bit Israel. Because as they watch this and the people of Israel see this, 
they're reminded and, and they're faced with the stark reality that they had been rejecting the true Messiah, Jesus. And they'd begun to follow an antichrist, a leader who was not the Messiah. And what I love from this is that this reference of, of Jesus is in itself even part of the gospel. And in verse 13, it says, at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Who are those survivors that are terrified and give glory? I believe it's the people of Israel, as I mentioned earlier. I think they're the ones who see this and respond because the others, they've already made their decision. They were the ones who wanted them dead. They're the ones who tried to kill these witnesses. Uh, they were the ones who celebrated when they were dead. But I think it's God's people, Israel, the nation of Israel, that sees it and repents. Here's kind of a summary point that I want to say because because he, he, here's, here's, as we read this, we're, we're shocked by this and we think we can't even hardly relate to this because we've, we, we've never seen this in our own lives, many of us. Now, some of you may have come from other nations or visited other nations or you read up on other nations, you know this is not true of the rest of the world. But here in America, we, it's almost like we live in a bubble and we've been protected and, and many times we don't have to face the kind of hostility uh, of violence or, or the threat of death. We might face a snicker or a laugh or, or a, a rude comment uh, sometimes there might be a, even a broken relationship, and all those things can hurt too. I'm not trying to put those down. But some of us read this and we think, how could this ever come to this point? Well, well it's simply this. If I could give you a phrase, a, a statement that I want you to remember that we can take with us today, it is this. The more that you experience obedience to God, the more that you will experience hostility from the world. And I say that again. The more that you begin to experience obedience to God, the more you will experience hostility from the world. Why do I say experience obedience? Because I believe obedience is an experience. You know, for us to take, make the decision in our own lives, not to just hear the word of God, not to just hang around the people of God, not just to be a church person or to be somebody who that's part of my life, but to actually begin to take the truth of God and apply it to our lives, then that begins to be the experience, the experience of applying God's word in our lives will take us to places and will grow us in ways that will create hostility from the world. And the more that we do that, the more hostility we will experience. We see this again throughout the world. We, some of you may have experienced this somewhat in your own lives. Here's the thing, some of us might be surprised by this because maybe we've been taught that the closer we get to God, the more things get better, that everything will, will be fine. There's even some churches that will teach that you can count on being healthy and wealthy and wise if you come closer to God. But really, we shouldn't be surprised by this concept. The reality is Jesus talked to his disciples about it in John chapter 15. In verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. I've often heard it said, and I was told growing up, if Listen, if, if the world would take your Savior and put them on a cross, and in fact, all of us were involved in this. It was our sin. We put him on the cross and killed him uh, and left him on that cross to die. How could we ever expect any different or better if we begin to follow that Savior? Uh, he goes on, he says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. That makes some sense. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now he's speaking to his disciples at this time, but it, it's, it's an extension to all of us as we begin to follow Jesus Christ. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It is absolutely a minimum 
uh, that we can expect to see persecution the more that we experience obedience to God, the more that we follow Christ, the more that we apply the truth of God's word. Now, some of you, hold on and hang in there. Don't give up on me. Some of you are like, I don't want any part of that. But let me just give you some more examples of this persecution in Acts. We see multiple examples of persecution in Acts 4 and 5. After Jesus gone to be with the Father, uh, Peter and John are beaten and arrested. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, Stephen, another follower of Christ, is arrested and stoned. I love the picture here because it's kind of a small picture of what happens in Revelation 11. Uh, when Stephen goes and he shares, he's arrested and then he's sharing the gospel. And at some point, at one point, he's talking to basically the religious leaders and he tells them, you guys are stiff-necked, you missed it, you didn't see it, you should have been the ones that saw Jesus as the Messiah and you're the ones who killed him. And when they heard it, it says in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. You ever been so mad that you're just gritting your teeth? That's how these guys were. It says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So he has a vision of, of, of the throne in the same way that John is in the midst of one. And it says that he said after seeing that, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In verse 57, it says that the group then cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. It's like children, na, 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 na. They began to rush him, it says. And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man, watch this, named Saul. Now first I just want to tell you, that's a hostile situation, amen? There's a lot of things going on there for Stephen. He gets, his life is taken. Uh, they are so upset that they grit their teeth and they cover their ears and they yell as they rush him. It's like a mob just rushing onto him and they lynched him basically. And then we see that the person in charge is a man named Saul. Well, this guy would become... Paul after he comes to Christ in chapter 9. This same guy who is leading this lynching becomes a new person in Christ. And we read about Paul that in chapters 9, 20, and 23, there were multiple plots to kill him. As well, he was arrested, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was betrayed. He was, I mean, he went through a whole life of suffering and persecution because of his faith. In Acts 12, James, the brother of John, who's writing our book of Revelation, is executed. In fact, all the apostles except John were executed. Some of the means, beheading, crucifixion, one was upside down, being impaled, being stoned, being clubbed, being burned. Later we read about martyrs who were boiled in oil and, and all kinds of other creative ways to take people's lives. It wasn't just a matter of them being executed, it was a matter of them being tortured and tormented while they were being executed. And this happens throughout all of history for all of the, uh, many of the obedient followers of Christ. They have endured this kind of hostility since Jesus was here. Now, as I talk to you about this, there's, there's shocking stuff that's, that's coming out. And, you, and, and in your mind, you're probably thinking, I don't know if I want to deal with this kind of thing. I, I, that's why I like being in America, and it's free. And, and there's really four ways that you can respond to what I'm talking about. Here's door number one. Door number one is you can choose to be angry at God and dig in. There are some who will listen to something like this and just like the world as the witnesses came on the scene and began to share the gospel, they will become angry. And they will dig in to their willing, wanting to stay on the throne of their life. They will dig in to say, I'm going to be the master of my life. I'm going to be in control of my life. And they will hold on to a deceptive hope 
that you can be in control of your own destiny. Door number two, you can be paralyzed by fear. There are many who don't even want to deal with the book of Revelation. They don't want to hear any of that stuff. They don't want to read the news or they do read the news or they watch the news and they're constantly crippled by fear. And that's a choice that you can make. Door number three is you could also be paralyzed by guilt. Very often because we live in America, the free land, a land of, that's wealthier than 98%, 99% in some cases of the rest of the world, uh, we can start to feel guilty about those things. And, because we feel distant from God, or maybe we feel guilty because we believe we could never accomplish those things, or we feel guilty because we live in a nation that isn't doing much. And then there's door number four. This is the door I hope you choose. You can accept the challenge to grow your experiences with God. You can accept the challenge to grow in your experiences with God. I hope that's what you choose. It's the riskiest option. Uh, it might mean some changes for many of us. It might mean for some of us coming to Christ for the first time, it might mean for others of us uh, letting go of some of the, the, the assumptions that we've had throughout most of our life about our nation, about politics, about other people, uh, about our call and our role as a Christian, as a believer. Uh, it's the riskiest option, but it's the one that has uh, the most reward. So to help us get started, here's what I wanna do. Here's how I wanna kind of apply what we're talking about here. Uh, as we determine, hopefully, many of you, determine to grow. Uh, and, and if you're, you're listening, throw something in the chat. Put something in there, which door you're going to take. Door one, two, three, or four. Am I going to dig in? I would love for someone to have the courage to say, yep, I'm digging in. We even heard from the church in, in, in Laodicea back in week one. God would rather you be hot or cold, but not lukewarm. So go ahead and dig in if that's your choice. Or, or maybe you're saying, man, I've struggled with fear. I feel crippled and paralyzed at times by fear. Or I struggle uh, with, with, with being guilty about living in this place and being, you know, uh, an American or being a believer who has lived in maybe a safe environment for much of my life. It's okay to say those things. But I would love to you also to say, look, I'm going to choose door four. I'm going I'm to take up these challenges. Now, I know you haven't heard them yet, but I'm going to take this challenge to be able to grow my faith, to grow in my obedience to God as I experience God. So let me give you some some challenges to grow your experience with God. These are not exhaustive, they're not formulaic, they're not, it's just a starting point. Many times, oftentimes, when we look at a big project in our lives or something that's been holding us back, we really just need to get started. So, so here's challenge number one. I want you to take on the challenge to prioritize God's kingdom. So what does that mean? Well, let's go back to the verses that bookended our story. You, you might remember we started in 11 verse three. Well, let's go back to verses one and two first. It says this, as chapter 11 opens, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. What's being described here is that John is being asked in verse 1 to actually become active in this vision that he's having. And he's given this reed, it was, it was uh, something that was used of the time that it, it was a, a reed that would be used because it was sometimes 15, 20 feet long and it could be used to measure. He's not really measuring the literal dimensions of the temple. This is actually a measuring of the nation of Israel because they already knew the measurements for the temple. That's already in the Old Testament. They already knew all that. God is preparing for his earthly reign by first measuring what belongs to him. And the thing that belongs to him the most on earth is the nation of Israel. What's so key here is that God made a promise to the nation of Israel that he would come back, come and reign on earth. This is in all the prophecies or many of the prophecies, I should say, before 
Jesus even comes. It's part of the reason why when Jesus was on the earth, he was confused in terms of his Messiahship. Some thought he was the Messiah and some said he can't be because he's not coming to, to rule. He's not coming to reign. Uh, what they didn't know is that Jesus was coming obviously to pay for sin and to conquer death so that we would have an opportunity to reign. Uh, but, but they didn't know that then. And so God is now telling John to start to measure. Later we're told that, be, that, that this nation of Israel, that all will be saved. Uh, I believe that part of that happens at the witnesses as they see the witnesses elevated to heaven. Um, I think that the point is that God in the rest of Revelation is going to save, preserve, and protect the nation of Israel. You'll see this in coming chapters. We'll be talking about it in future weeks. But hold that thought, okay? Now, in verse 2, but exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles, they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. John is also instructed then to measure the outer court. Now, in the temple, the outer court was the place of the Gentiles. This was for people who weren't Jewish to be able to come and worship God. So this is the entry point for people who are outside of the nation of Israel to be able to come, because part of God's plan was for them to receive that. Okay, in many ways as a church, we can't restrict things to certain people. We, have to, we want to be available and open to all. But God says, don't count that because it's been given to the Gentiles. In other words, there's this period of time, it says 42 months, three and a half years, the same 1260 days, they're all the same amount of time where the Gentiles are going to rule, led by the Antichrist. So hold that thought, okay? Let's go down to verses 15 through 19, which is after the story of the witnesses. In verse 15, it says, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. So remember I told you the seven seals, the six trumpets, they'd all happen and will be happening throughout the, the time of these witnesses. After the witnesses are gone and done, this seventh trumpet blows. And here's what happens. There were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of, the Messiah, of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world is becoming the kingdom of God. What's happening here is the announcement of the beginning of God reigning on the earth. This fulfillment of the pro uh, promise to Israel. Why is this so important? Because it's all part of the message of the kingdom of God. Okay, uh, It says at that moment that the 24 elders begin to worship God in verse 16. In verse 17, they give thanks. They begin to give thanks and they say, We give thanks to you, Lord, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And then they go on and say, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead, rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. In other words, this begin, begun, or begins the fulfillment of God's earthly kingdom, his reign. Up till now, his rule and reign has been spiritual. But in this moment, it begins to become physical. Why is this so important? Why is this? Because... The point of revelation, and by extension, the point of all of human history, is God's kingdom. It's his reign. It's not as if he hasn't been reigning. It's not as if he hasn't been on his throne. We've already seen images from revelation of the throne, but it has been spiritual. It has been uh, beyond the physical realm. Uh, and what's happening is God is going to bring this kingdom to the earth in a fulfillment of a promise made to Israel, in a fulfillment of the expectation of every Jewish person he's gonna bring this kingdom to the earth. Now, one of the things that you need to know is, is that, is, is, again, is that the point is that God's patience, as of now, has not, has, has not allowed for the kingdom to become a reality in our midst. But that there's coming a point when he will. So my question is, is God's kingdom a priority in your life? 
Is this something that you wake up each day and think about? I'm a citizen. If you're a follower of Jesus, do you think this way, that you're a citizen of the kingdom of God? And that part of your role is to both live out the principles of the kingdom and then share the principles of the kingdom with others and invite them in to become part of the kingdom as well. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, in the middle of a three chapter, we get chapters and verses that wasn't really there in the original text, but, uh, but there are three chapters devoted to a sermon, essentially, that he's giving on a mountainside about the kingdom of God. And in the midst of this, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The context is in the, it's telling everybody, don't sweat or worry or be anxious about everyday things, like food and clothing and things. Instead, seek first God's kingdom and these things will be added. He's basically telling people that what's the, the priority of life, even over food, even over dwelling, even over clothing, is the kingdom of God. And when that's in place, when that becomes the hub, everything else starts to fall into place. Doesn't mean everything's always gonna go your way or you're always gonna come out on top or all of that stuff, but you'll begin to be able to make sense out of the rest of life if the kingdom of God is what you are seeking first. Jesus in those three chapters would tell his followers about the kingdom of God. Uh, some markers of the kingdom include peace and generosity, equality, inclusion, community, sacrificial love, authentic relationship, and service. These are all parts of the kingdom of God. I don't know if there's anyone among us who would say, I hate those things. I don't want anything to do with peace. I don't want anything to do with authentic relationships. I don't want to have, have any place where everyone is equal and included. Uh, you know, I, I'm not about love, but that's what the kingdom is about. And God is going to usher that into an earthly reign at some point. In the meantime, we need to think about how we can make the kingdom a priority in our lives. I would suggest four rhythms that will help you, I think, prioritize the kingdom in your life. If you've not done that, or maybe if you are and you just want to kind of ramp that up, here's four, again, not exhaustive, just a starting point, just some things to think about that might begin to elevate the priority of God's kingdom in your life. First thing is a daily time with God. You know, sometimes we talk about daily devotions or daily prayer. I, I actually don't mind. One time I asked my wife, who's an athletic trainer, uh, how, what the best exercise was to do. Because, you know, I periodically uh, sort of fall into a, a rhythm of thinking that it's time to get healthier. So I, I talked to her. I said, hey, what's the best exercise that I could do? And she looked at me. She said, the one that you will do every day. And I think in many times when you talk about a daily time with God, it's not about Bible reading or prayer or worship or any of that. It's what will you do every day to get started? As you get going, you might add other elements. How about how much time do I do? It's however much time you'll stay consistent with. If it's five minutes, 15 or three hours, whatever time. But have a daily time with God in his word, in accountability with God, in worship and crying out in prayer and even for other people who don't walk with God. All of those things are parts of things that you can do in your, account or your time with God. How about a rhythm number two, consistent community service. What I mean is service that affects and impacts the community. It could be the church community, it could be the community around you, but are, are you consistent in that service? Not just showing up for occasional events, which are great, but actually consistent in your uh, commitment to serve other people. Why? So that you could begin to tell others, help to touch needs and then teach the word. That's why we want to get into service. How about knowing and sharing your God story? That's another rhythm that you could pick up that helps you be committed to God's kingdom, is understanding the rhythm uh, of sharing, uh, knowing first your story with God and then sharing your story with God. And then finally, I would say get into a small group. Very often, being around other people is very helpful when we want to be committed to the kingdom of God. My other suggestion is invite your family and friends to do this as well. 
be an impact on all of them. The point is that if we want to experience God more, uh, then we need to prioritize his kingdom or his agenda because the world system is set up to distract us from keeping God's kingdom a priority and then that can make us comfortable and that can rob us of our impact. So three challenges, prioritize God's kingdom. Here's number two, prioritize selfless prayer. Now I don't have to tell any of us that how to prioritize prayer for ourselves, but how about selfless prayer? How about getting to a place where the majority of my prayers are not necessarily about me, but they're about God and about others and about accomplishing his agenda. Uh, the truth is that um, whatever and whenever uh, you pray, um, you wanna be able to start to become a person who begins to think outside of yourself. Um, because oftentimes whenever we do pray and we usually struggle with prayer, we usually default to praying for ourselves. That's kind of natural, it's organic. And that's okay, we're not saying that's wrong, but why don't enlarge that prayer time so that it includes other things that aren't so self-involved. The truth is selfless prayer is another ball game altogether. In fact, it changes the game from just praying about me and my stuff and, and what's important, but also beginning to think about others. And when we begin to pray for others, we become more alert to what is going on around us. When we become more alert, we become less self-involved, uh, which allows us to see what God is up to in the lives around us. Uh, and when we spend regular time with God and we begin to, to see what God is up to, our hearts begin to merge with God's heart. And then when that happens, we begin to experience God more. The secret sauce is consistency. It's making a commitment to be consistent. You may be thinking, Pastor, I'm not even sure I can commit to pray for myself, let alone for others. Uh, but I would say to you, the important thing again is to start somewhere. So with that in mind, let me just give you a few suggestions on where to start. You know, when the early followers of Jesus were praying, uh, there was a point in their life where the, uh, Peter and John, I spoke about earlier, were arrested. Uh, they were beaten and then they were released with the threat, stop doing this or else. When they came back to the rest of the people, uh, they began to pray. They did an interesting thing when they prayed. They didn't just pray for protection or safety. In fact, in Acts 4, it says that they looked up and said, and now Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They prayed for boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders perform through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They basically prayed for boldness so that God could continue to do what he was doing. That's an amazing prayer. My first suggestion is, if you wanna get started with prayer, begin to pray about boldness. You might even pray about wisdom so that you could see opportunities and then the boldness to seize those opportunities. Here's number two, they all prayed together, so I would suggest pray with others. Again, in a small group, maybe within your family, maybe some coworkers, uh, you find a way to pray with other people because that will not only keep you accountable to staying consistent because you set up regular times with them in a small group every week or whatever, but also it's the power of all praying together. We've done that by offering a fasting challenge where we could pray even if we're not in the same room together, but as a church, we can all fast between now and Easter, different days, different things, if you wanna use the challenge or pick something on your own, that you could begin to pray for the lives of other people who need to know Christ. Again, in small groups, oftentimes we can come together and we can pray. And now, if I can, I just wanna show you what happened when these early followers of Jesus prayed. It says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Did you catch what happened? Some of you will lock in on the earthquake and the thing that that's great, but that's actually not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that God answered their prayer. That's what happened. They basically continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
Uh, the reality is, is that in addition to that, it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and we can get caught on all the theological aspects of what that means. But what I really want you to see is that he empowered them through the Holy Spirit to continue to do what they had prayed about, which was to be bold and to continue to speak the word. And then God was able to begin to move. You see, when you prioritize prayer, your prayer becomes about God and his agenda. And then it will be about glorifying him by making disciples. Your prayer will unite you with God and then you will experience God. And your experience will create pushback and hostility from others, but God will give you great fruit and the power to get through it. So it's important for us to prioritize selfless prayer. Finally, in these challenges, I want you to prioritize transformation, not comfort. See, the idea that the more we experience obedience to God, the more we will endure hostility, I know can be confusing, a little off-putting, maybe even a little intimidating for some of us. Because we've, we've sort of had a foundation laid in American life about freedoms and about the pursuit of happiness and prosperity and comfort. And some will even try to convince us that, that that's really what life's all about and that's what you're supposed to be doing. But the reality is that most of us in America, they don't really want to be bothered by God or his kingdom. Sometimes even church people don't. And that, again, can be intimidating but because many only want a cosmic butler or some type of divine Santa Claus. And the end result is that we have misplaced expectations of God and what he wants to do for us and, and how life is supposed to be. And it can keep us silent and it keep us asleep. But here's the thing. I'm not interested in making us feel guilty about living in America or being in a free nation or, or even having above average means. What I want to do is inspire us to begin to leverage those things for the sake of transformation in other people's lives. What I want is for us to fall in love with stories of transformation and want to be a part of being involved in that by carrying out the message of Christ, by standing up for our faith, uh, by, by being willing to come and, and in our lives, our families, our communities, the world, that we become people who are known uh, for helping others come to peace with God. What we need is to make transformation a priority. Our fasting guide that I mentioned earlier is a great place to start. You could sign up to go hit the community and pass out door hangers, which is coming later uh, as an opportunity to do. You could serve at the party in the park, or you could serve even at the community event that's coming up around Easter. You could invite others to come to Easter and be a part of that. All of those things are ways to make transformation a priority, not comfort. Enjoy your comfort, it's okay, but don't make that the priority, don't make that the pursuit especially when it's at the expense of transformation. Let's be people who will take time and interrupt our schedule and interrupt our agendas and interrupt maybe even our finances and other things so that we can help others experience transformation with God. So these three things, if we begin to prioritize God's kingdom and prioritize selfless prayer and prioritize transformation, not comfort, are ways in which we can begin to grow in our experience with God. Now let me say this, in many ways, Revelation teaches us that life is a game of thrones. You know, it's, it, you have this question, who's going to be the king? Who's going to be in charge? In light of eternity even, who's going to rule? Who's gonna, what's the quality of life going to be in that kingdom for that person who leads? Who's going to be a part of that kingdom and rule alongside that king? Uh, and, and in Revelation 12, we even get a picture of the history of the world from God's perspective. I encourage you to read on your own. I encourage you to go and look at it because it's a fascinating tale. On one side, you have the creator, God, who is, who is really the, the true divine king. He's been the king. He hasn't lost being the king. Uh, there's no reason for him not to be king. And on the other side, uh, you have Satan, who is called the dragon in Revelation 12, who wants to rule. He's the usurper. He wants to take over. He wants to overthrow God and rule in his place. 
And in the middle of all that is you and I. And the funny thing is while that battle's going on, some of us unaware and some of us aware or unaware, we have our own battle going on inside us. Because this system that's in our world that's been set up by our enemy, the, the dragon, has been set up to distract us to the point where what we start to think about is how in the world can we put ourselves on the throne? So now you have three parties banging around for this, this, this game of thrones. Is it God? Is it Satan? Is it ourselves? Do, do we follow the world? Do we follow the system of the, of the dragon? Do we follow God? And what happens is, is that for many of us, we find ourselves at door number one. Remember door number one? We start to hear the message of God and we dig in. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're digging in to your way of life. You're saying, I'm going to stay the king. I'm going to stay on the throne. And as God calls you, and as you hear this message, you're, the battle that's going on in your mind between what you know of the system of the world, what you know of your, and, and what you know of God, this battle's going on about really what's at stake is, will I give my life to Christ? You know, it's interesting that Jesus would say in Matthew 16, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? He asked these questions. What's the point of getting everything you would ever want in your world and throughout your life and somehow miss out on God? And somehow miss out and your soul then is, is, is condemned for all of eternity. He would say in the second part of verse 25, whoever loses their life for me though will find it. So what I'm asking you today is, are you willing to step off the throne of your own life and let Jesus reign and actually find a life that is better than the life you know today? Every week we, we, we give people an opportunity to do this and I, I wanna lead you through a prayer. And as I lead you through this prayer, if you're someone who's sitting in there and I'm saying, I'm digging in, I'm digging in, I'm digging in, today's the day that you wanna stop fighting God, stop fighting all the stuff that's going on and, and put your arms out and say, yes, God, I'm yours, Jesus, I'm yours. Then I'm gonna invite you to pray this prayer with me, okay? You can pray this, Jesus, today I commit my life to you. I believe you died in my place. You are the lamb that takes away my sins. Today, I trust you to be the king of my life. I, I want you to forgive me. Will you wash me clean? Will you change me so I can leave my old way of life and follow you today? In Jesus' name, I ask, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you're gonna start seeing in the chat room, if you're watching on the, online, the, the, the bubble start pop and click one of those, put in, I said yes. Uh, you can also text next to the phone number that you're going to see on the screen. These are all different ways that you can let us know because we want you to respond and help us understand that you've made this decision today because we want to follow up. This is the greatest decision you could ever make. And we don't believe in birthing babies and leaving them on the door doorstep. So as you've come and, and you want to be born into a new relationship with Christ, we want to be able to help you grow in that. And so I want to encourage you to do that. Just click say yes. Uh, I said yes, I should say, or answer one of the prompts that are in there or text the number that you see on the screen. Uh, and we want to be able to follow up. You know, I would say to you, life is a game of thrones, as I said. Uh, what makes matters tough is the more you experience obedience to God, the more you will experience hostility from this world. And it can impact our relationships, our struggles to belong, or even our safety, but God is still in control. And as you begin uh, to, to, to experience more obedience with God, our job is to keep God, uh, His kingdom as a priority, to keep selfless prayer as a priority, and our job is to value transformation over comfort.
Let me pray. Father, thank you for those who are listening. Thank you for this message of revelation. Thank you that as scary as it can be, we in the midst of it, embedded in it, is your power, your authority, your hope, your grace, your mercy. I'm so grateful for that, that you are not a God uh, who has a wild temper and, 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 and wanders off to do things that are random, but you stick to your word, you're consistent, and you love us, God. May we give our lives to you, serve you well this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. I want to encourage you to not just stop here. Maybe you sense God is speaking to you today and wanting you to take that next step. So here's two ways you can do just that. The first is text the word next to the number 909-281-7797. That's 909-281-7797. You'll receive a message back with some ways to help you grow. That may mean joining a small group or finding a place to serve or just talking with someone one-to-one about your faith. You can also visit the notes for this podcast and follow the links provided. And if you're within driving distance of one of our four physical locations in Banning, Ontario, Rialto, or Victorville, we'd love for you to stop by sometime and give us a chance to meet you personally. Again, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. God bless.